child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here ends the epistle. This is the word of the Lord. For the last several weeks, we have been going through selected passages in Revelation. This morning, our passage is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible, please turn with me. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. As you're turning, have, have you been following baseball this year? You know, it's always uh, an exciting thing here in St. Louis, primarily because we have a professional ball team, right? The Cardinals, and, and we're, used to, uh, we're used to being in the playoffs and, and sometimes winning the playoffs and sometimes going to the World Series, and on a not-too-infrequent basis, we win the World Series. But there's another team north of us in Chicago who doesn't quite have the same track record that the Cardinals do. This week, um, I was reading an article on Theo Epstein that another member of our congregation pointed me to. And it's an interesting article because he's the manager of the Cubs. And it's a rather lengthy article that talks about what their record was this year and the ups and downs that they experience in their ball club. But in one portion of that article, it talks about how Theo... While other people were having a good time in the, um, in the club room, he would go into his office, and it says, in his office, the biggest thing hanging on the wall was a picture of the famous baseball player Ted Williams. Ted Williams played professional bo- uh, baseball for 19 years and is considered to be one of the best hitters in the game of baseball, in the top four or five, without question. And Theo Epstein keeps a picture of Ted Williams on his wall, a large picture. It's a picture of Ted Williams in his rookie year of baseball. And you can see in Ted Williams' face the joy and the excitement, the love of playing baseball. But if any of you are baseball fans and have heard about Ted Williams, you'll know that as he went along in his baseball career, he became somewhat jaded. He became a grumpy man, some would say, so much so that the tradition of when one hits a home run and as they're rounding the bases, they tip the hat to their fans was something that Ted Williams, in his latter years, refused to do because the fickleness of the fans. He said, at one point in time, they are jeering you for missing a catch, and then the next moment, they are singing your praises because you've hit a home run. And he said, the fans are fickle. Ted Williams had lost sight of the love of the game, that the joy is the experience together. 
And C.O. Epstein keeps that picture of Ted Williams in his first year of baseball on the wall as a reminder to himself and to his team not to become jaded, but to always remember the love of the game. In our passage this morning, we are going to read the first of seven letters that Jesus spoke to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And in it, we will see that the church at Ephesus had lost its first love. It had forsaken its first love, much like Ted Williams had forsaken his love of the game. The church at Ephesus had forsaken their first love. If you have the passage before you, read with me, if you will. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church at Ephesus. Ephesus was an important city in Asia Minor. There are seven churches, seven cities that... John ultimately pins the letters of Christ to Ephesus being the largest and the most important city in that time. One of the reasons it was so important was because there was a port at the edge of Ephesus that was a main thoroughfare for trade and for commerce. Another reason it was important was because that it was an administrative hub for the Roman Empire. The governor of Asia Minor would oftentimes go to Ephesus and that's where he would hear trials of significance or he would bring down edicts from Rome. It was a very large city for that time. Estimates are it was anywhere from 200,000 to 250,000, a quarter of a million people in that city. There were three temples for the imperial cult. Three different emperors had had temples built for them. But what it was most known for was another temple the largest temple that had been constructed in the Greek or Roman world, the Temple of Diana or Artemis. It was a massive temple. The base of it was some 100,000 square feet. It was held up by 100 massive pillars. The main altar which has been discovered was gigantic. And in that temple was said to be kept the vision or the image of Artemis, of Diana, that had fallen from the sky, maybe a meteorite or something of that nature. And all of the city was consumed with what went on at the temple of Artemis. Do you remember in Acts, when when Paul went to Ephesus, 
And the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully, and men and women began to repent and come to Christ. And what happened? An uprising in Ephesus occurred. A riot occurred. The silversmiths who made their money off of making small figurines and trinkets for the temple of Artemis were losing money. There was such a ruckus, and a riot broke out. And for two hours they gathered And they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, drowning out the message of the gospel and of those who would proclaim Christ. It was was massively important in Ephesus. That temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. And into that city came the Apostle Paul and early Christians. And Paul preached the gospel and at one point stayed there for nearly two years. And having left, he left Timothy there as the pastor. Timothy serving the churches and the members in Ephesus. And then after Timothy, the apostle John made Ephesus his headquarters for ministry. And so it's fitting that in this passage, the apostle John is writing to those people he knew well, and he understood well the culture. And as he writes to them and recounts the words of Christ, he recounts their loss of their first love. So we look at this passage, we will observe two things. We will observe first an orthodoxy within the church at Ephesus that had grown cold. And then we will also observe a love that was rekindled. Jesus comes to this church and he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my hand and walk among the lampstands. And he says, I know your deeds. What do we gather from that? Christ is present with his churches. If he walks among his lampstands, which were the churches, he is here. He is aware of what's going on within his community. Think back when you were a child. When you did something that was great, what was your heart's desire? For most of it, our heart's desire was to have our parents be there to see it. Or what about when you were going through a difficult time, when you were hurt, when it seemed in your childish mind that the world was coming to an end? You were being hurt and there were bullies at school who were pressing down on you. What did you want? Your desire was for your parents to be there, to know, to see. And that's exactly what Christ is saying to his people. He says, I know your deeds. Christ has an intent and deep care for his people. He cared what was going on at Ephesus and what was going on. What were the deeds that they were doing here? He says, I know your hard work and your perseverance. And then he goes on to say that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you test those who claim to be apostles and you prove them to be false, and that you have persevered under great duress, and yet you have not become weary. These are the works of orthodoxy in the church at Ephesus. In the early church, there were many who went around and who tried to persuade others that they were apostles, that they came from Christ, that their words were carrying with them the authority of Christ. And so, at Ephesus, they recognized this. And as people came in and 
proclaimed to the apostles, they tested them. They examined what it was they were teaching, and they examined the life of those who came in. And when they found it to be false, errant, deviating from the gospel that they had received, they rejected them. They rejected their message. They guarded the faith and the truth that had been imparted to them. In in a culture where you are being persecuted, the truth of the gospel becomes all the more dear to you. And time and time again throughout church history, as the church has experienced persecution, even as the church at Ephesus was, and as they would experience in the near future to when John was writing, doctrine has always become precious. The truth of the gospel has always been heralded. Persecution has been like the refiner's fire. And so it was at Ephesus that, as they experienced these things, that the truth of the gospel that had been parted to them was something they guarded zealously. But not only did they guard the faith, but it also says here that Christ said that I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. Think about it in Ephesus where this great and grand temple sits on a hill in the city and everything about society and the whole city seems to be overshadowed by what's going on there. And the worship that occurred at that temple was contrary to the very thing, the very goals of the gospel. There was practices of magic and of seeking power through the cult of Artemis. There was, even as we read later in the passage, the the practices of the Nicolaitans, which was a syncretist movement whereby the Nicolaitans were coming in and, and saying that it was okay to eat meat offered to idols with the idea that you're condoning, you're, you're gaining some kind of power from that. And they also had the idea that sexual immorality was something to be reveled in. And in the midst of all of this, a society that was contrary to the very goals of the gospel, God's people persevered. Yes, they were persecuted, but Christ knew He identified with them. He said, I see what's going on. I care about you. In our own lives, as we endure hardship, as we persevere in our faith, we do not do that apart from the watchful eyes of our Savior, who sees your life, who knows where you are at, the difficulties in your life, and He cares for you. But even as the church at Ephesus guarded the orthodoxy of the church, even as they guarded the faith that had been passed down to them, yet we see that it was an orthodoxy that had grown cold. We read in verse 4, Christ says, Though you have all of this for your favor, yet I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. It was an orthodoxy that had lost the affection, the fervor, the warmth of love. It was outward, and it was cold. In our society and in our media, in our publications, there is a common thread and theme that runs through many stories we hear about marriage. It's about 
a man and a woman who are married young and their love is pure and it is fervent. And they take time for one another and they care for one another. They sit on their patio together and they drink a glass of wine and they talk about their hopes and they talk about their fears and they talk about what having a family would be like. And then eventually they have the children and they have one child and maybe they have a second child or a third or a fourth. And they're happy and they're joyous in their excitement for being new parents and it seems as though the world is their oyster. And then it happens. The children grow up and there's Boy Scouts and there's Girl Scouts. There's volleyball practice and there's orchestra concerts after school. There's things that need to be done at work where you work work late. There's a desire to move up in your job. There's all sorts of things that encroach. And many, many people in their marriage, they figure out a routine that they can be able to do all of these things. Their Monday's full with Boy Scouts. Their Tuesday's full with volleyball practice. Their Wednesday is PTA meetings and fundraisers. And their Thursday's is another karate lesson for another kid. And Fridays, well, Fridays would be free, except that oftentimes there's things in their community that they want to participate in and volunteer for. And then Saturday, well, Saturday, that's when they go to the tournaments. Or that's when they try to get things done around the house, or they fix it up, and it's always full, and they're always moving. And yes, they're holding the appearance of a family together, but somewhere along the way, the love is lost. The connection becomes disconnected. It's an outward appearance of a loving family, but the heart of the family has died. That's the image we see here in Revelation. It is a love that was forsaken. It's significant that Christ says that you have forsaken your first love. You see, love is rarely lost. It is more often misdirected. Often it's misdirected to other things outside that we consider vastly more important. What is is it in your life? Where is your love directed? Is it towards your job? Towards success? Towards getting a larger paycheck? Being able to afford the finer things in life? Not having the stress of living paycheck to paycheck, but having enough buffer that you can do the fun things and you can enjoy life. What about your reputation? Is it your love of your reputation? What other people think of you? how they view you. You want to cover up the things in your life that cause shame and the reputation that you want out there is as someone who has it together. And so you give all of your time and all of your energy towards that. Maybe it's towards your hobbies. Maybe your love is directed even towards your own comfort. But your love is not directed to what it once was. You've lost or forsaken your first love. Love is significant within the church and within Christ's community. Here Christ levels against them the charge that they have lost or they have forsaken their first love. And in the end of this passage, he gives a clue to how how important love is. 
the prime place that love takes in the community of Christ. For he says that if you do not return, turn and repent, return to the first love you have forsaken, I will remove your lampstand from you. He doesn't say, if you fail in your orthodoxy, I will remove your lampstand from you. He says, if you persist in forsaking love, I will remove your lampstand from you. We read in 1 Corinthians 13 that without love, all that we do, all that we would hope to do for Christ is worthless. A clashing cymbal, a sounding gong. I think of the commercial of Steak and Shake when I think of a sounding gong, right? Have you seen it? The, the two guys, they're like in karate garb and... The one master is always teaching the younger guy, you know, how to order the right thing at Steak and Shake. And in the middle of the night, he, he, he has this gong right outside his pupil's window. And he slams the hammer into the gong, and it's just crazy annoying, especially at 2 in the morning. Right? And he starts waking people up, and people are hollering at him to stop. And then the next thing you know, you hear police sirens. Why? Because... Nobody wants to hear it. Without love, that is our life. Though we give everything that we have without love, it's a clashing cymbal, a sounding gong. It actually becomes unlovely in the sight of God. So what do we do? How do we rekindle this love? Christ comes to his people and in grace he encourages them for that which they are doing. And out of love he calls them to rekindle their love. He calls them to three things. First, to remembrance. Second, to repentance. And third, to renewal. He says, remember the heights from which you have fallen. Now, that's not to say that the church at Ephesus were some super-Christians. The context here is to draw their attention to the fact of the place that love played, the part it played in their life when they became new Christians. He said, remember, remember, remember. Memory is, is extremely powerful. Friday night, we were in small group, and we got talking about our childhood and some of the things we remembered. And we started talking about the candy bars and the candy that we remembered in childhood. You know, the sixlets that you always, always used to be able to buy at every single store. You know, we talked about the lickamades, the ones with the three pouches and the two sticks that would rub your tongue raw after you got done with it. We talked about the nowlaters that pulled my fillings out when I was a kid. The Laffy Taffy. I remember when Laffy Taffy came out. Oh, that was good stuff. And as we're talking, we're remembering these things, and we're we're going back to childhood. And, and, And some of the excitement of being a kid came back to me. And the joy of those summer days when we had off in school and and me and my brothers would go up to the corner store and we'd stand there for a half an hour with our 50 cents and we'd try to decide, do we buy a blow pop or do we buy two of the dum-dum suckers? 
Oh, that life was that simple. And our affections are turned towards that and reignited. But there's more than just the nostalgia of our childhood. You see, in marriage, a marriage that has grown cold, so many times it is so important for us to remember back to the first time when we first got married. The joy, the fellowship that we had. The excitement, the fervor for one another. And you see, when we recall those things, it's not looking back on something that we cannot have anymore. But it's looking back on something that we can renew that still can be present in our life today. It's not something that we've lost like our childhood. We can never go back. I can't be a child again. I have a mortgage now. I have a car payment. I have all of these things that distract me. But my love for Christ and my affection for Him is not something just of the past. It is something that can be in the present, the here and the now. In Ephesus, John, or Christ through John, is calling them to remember their first love, to remember what it was that they saw in the gospel. In Acts 19, verses 11 through 20, we have a picture of what it was that they saw in the gospel when it came to Ephesus. told you that there was cults of magic and other things that occurred uh, and that were popular in Ephesus. And when, when Paul came, Paul came performing miracles in Ephesus to prove the validity of the gospel. And he healed people in the name of Christ. And we read in Acts, 11, or Acts 19 that Paul did so many miracles that, that even the napkins and the garments that he had touched could be carried to other people and their diseases would be healed. Well, there were some Jewish exorcists in Ephesus. Seven of them, we are told, sons of Siva, one of the high priests who decided that, hey, this, this was a great idea. This is awesome. Paul has all this power, and he's doing this in the name of Jesus. I think we're going to go out, and we're going to attempt this. And it says that they went out, and they found a demon-possessed person, and they went in the house, and all seven of them tried to cast out the demon. In the name of Jesus, which Paul preaches, they said, we cast you out. And the guy who was possessed looked at them and said, well, Jesus I know. Paul, I know. Who are you? And it says that he beat them naked and they ran out of the house. I heard a pastor speak on this and he made a good point. You know, usually in a fight, I remember in in school, you know, you kind of had to judge who was the winner, right? But here, if, if you go into a fight with your pants on, and, and you come out, and you don't have pants anymore, I think we know who the winner was. <laughs> and it says in this passage that everybody heard about this. Jews and Greeks alike, inside the synagogue and outside of the synagogue. I mean, imagine being these guys, right? You go to the synagogue, and they're like, hey, don't, don't, I, don't I know you? Aren't you, uh, no, 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 aren't you the guy that went running down the street? I mean, think about the embarrassment of that. The proclamation of this had gone out. And it says that when the people heard this, the name 
of Christ was revered. And they brought all of their magical books and they burned them and the cost of it was estimated at 50,000 silver pieces. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars in our currency today. Why? Because in Ephesus, where power was desired, where magic was practiced to be able to exert power, Christ had come in through the Apostle Paul and proven that he was the greatest power, that all else was subject to him through Paul's testimony, and that if you just came in doing lip service, then the power was not there. And men repented and they came to Christ. You see, John is saying, remember your first love. Remember what you saw. Remember the power and the glory and the majesty of Christ. Remember. But remembering God's power is not the only thing. As Christians, we need to remember His love. I had another illustration which I have heard previously and unfortunately have had the experience of sitting through when I was younger. And the illustration and the setting usually goes like this. It's, it's a love weights conference or a purity conference, maybe at a camp or something, and the guys and girls are in there, the young people are in there, and the, the speaker is trying to, to convince them that they need to maintain their sexual purity. That's important. I don't denigrate that. But the illustration usually goes like this. A pastor pulls out a rose, a beautiful rose, And says, everyone, look at this rose. This rose is beautiful. Smell this rose. It smells sweet. Feel the petals. It's so soft. I'm going to pass it around. I'm going to pass it around. I want everybody to feel it, everybody to touch it. And he passes it, and it goes around, goes through all the kids. And then he says, where's where's my rose? And somebody in the back might hold it up. And and there's the rose with the broken stem, and the petals have come off, and everybody's touched it and destroyed it. And then they proceed to guilt people saying, you don't want to be like this rose where everybody's touched you, and so you need to remain sexually pure. And they use fear-mongering to try to convince you. He says, who would want a rose like this, a broken rose? And you know what I want to do? I want to stand up, and I want to say, Jesus! He wants the rose. In fact, there's no other kind of rose that he wants. He didn't come for the well. He didn't come for people who were perfect. He came to love and to restore those who were broken. Remember the love Christ has for you. A remembrance should produce something, though, in us. It should produce in us repentance. When once we remember, when once we again see the beauty and the glory of our God, when once we see the deep compassion that He has for us, that He came and He gave everything that He was and everything that He has so that He could have us, then in our hearts there is developed an attitude of repentance. Repentance is a turning away from that which we were pursuing before and a turning to something else. It alters the entire course of our life, the direction that we were headed. And Christ says, repent. 
All of those things that you have been following, all of those things that you think are going to give you value, that you think are going to make your life perfect, that you think are going to satisfy you, they will leave you empty in the end. Turn to me. Repent. We sang this hymn a little earlier, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written by Robert Robinson. He was a Baptist minister in the 1700s. And one of the verses that we sang is this, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Well, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our hearts are prone to wander. But if we once again see the beauty of Christ, our wandering heart takes on an attitude of repentance whereby we no longer persist in pursuing those other things, but daily we repent and come back to the God who loves us. One of the quotes that I found this week says this, Holy men, after their hearts are renewed by repentance, are not ashamed to remember and confess their slips and shameful falls to the glory of God. For they account that the glory which such confessions take from them is not lost while it goes to the glory of God. Repentance, though it might seem at first to strip us of our own glory, Yet it brings glory to a God who loves us deeply, who has called us back to Himself, who desires us for His very own. That repentance, though, should issue forth in that which we are called to next. It is a renewal, a renewal of our works of love. See, the love that the Ephesians had forsaken were not just their love for God, but also the love within the community in their effort to defend the faith, in their effort to persevere, which were good things, it had been on the exclusion of others. That's the focus. And in the midst of focusing on that, they had lost the love for their community. It's like when you swim in the ocean. I remember as a kid, I went swimming at Myrtle Beach. Uh, We went down to visit my aunt and uncle there, and me and my cousin went out into the surf. And one of the things I had never done at that point in my life was body surf. And so the surf was pretty good. It wasn't too terribly strong. And so my cousin said, she said, come on, let's go, Dave. Let's go out and body surf. And so we went out from where the family kind of had made their little campsite on the beach. And, and we went out, I don't know, 30, 40 feet, a little bit more, and we started to figure it out. And kind of as we, as we got going, we'd, we'd go out further so that we could surf a little bit more. And, and after a while, all of a sudden, we realized that, that our parents were not in front of us anymore. Now they were about a quarter of a mile further up the beach from where we were. See, we had focused so much on the body surfing that we didn't realize that the current was carrying us down the beach. It became invisible to us because we were focused on other things. The renewal of our works of love, the renewal of the love in this community is not something that just merely happens. It's not just a general affection that we have for others but it requires intentional effort on our part. 
It requires that that affection we have renewed in remembering our Savior be put into action and express itself through love in our community in a definitive way. Our love of Christ, our love of our God, is never independent of our love of one another. In fact, if this is the core message, in a time when the church was being persecuted, the answer for the church in Ephesus was not to fight back, but it was to love more. When a world would say, defend yourself, Christ would say, love your enemy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The first commandment. But the second commandment like this is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And Christ put it even more poignantly in the Last Supper, right? He said, you have heard, love others as you have loved yourself. But I tell you, I give you a new commandment. Love others like I loved you. In the Old Testament, the image of Christ's love was seen in the sacrificial system, but it was as though a shadow. When Christ came and gave his all for us on the Christ and on the cross, this, this is the true picture of love. He says, Don't just love other people like you love yourself, love them like I love you. Sacrificially. Love them with a heart that is turned towards their good, who desires their good, because that's how you have been loved. What does that look like? For a church to love others like that. Sandra Peoples writes in Christianity Today, back in 2010, we held our three-year-old son's hand and walked into a meeting with a school psychologist, occupational therapist, and speech pathologist. We walked out holding our autistic son's hand. That moment changed everything in our lives. Our family dynamics shifted as we opened our home to four different therapists each week. Dinner became not only a time to eat together, but also to help James regain the language skills he had lost. Who is this? Daddy. Say Daddy. I settled into the idea of working from home to be available to him. Since insurance only covered a portion of his therapies, we adjusted our finances to cover the rest. We began to look into the future as a family of three, rather than envisioning me and my husband as eventually empty nesters. I also turned to the Psalms and Job more and more. One thing that couldn't change was the church we attended. My husband, the pastor of a small church in central Pennsylvania, felt called to stay despite our concerns that our congregation might not be able to meet our son's needs. Then a member of the church who works in occupational therapy got some sensory-friendly toys for his Sunday school room. She helped this teacher... She helped his teachers understand his behaviors. She hugged me outside his classroom and promised me he would be fine. After that, a special ed teacher volunteered to help as his buddy and began to train others to do the same. They didn't realize they were doing special needs ministry 
they just got to know our son James and did what they could to help. With this team in place, I started inviting other parents I met in the therapy waiting rooms and autism parent support groups. I told them how welcoming our church was and passed out flyers about our respite nights when parents could drop off their kids at church and have a date night. My husband stood at a booth for our church at an autism walk that drew thousands. Some asked him why the church was there. He said we wanted to share the good news of God's love and tell families of our our church was a safe place for them and their special needs children. Sure enough, families from the walk showed up as visitors soon after. We wanted to start talking to the kids, excuse me, taking the kids to church, but we're nervous, one mom said. When you said your church was a, had a special needs ministry, we were interested. But when you said you have a son with autism and that your church loves him, we knew, knew it could be the church home for us. Love is reaching out to the least of those among us. So often, those who are least among us, we, whether intentionally or unintentionally, do not show them the love that Christ has shown to us. Where there's noisiness in the service, where there's misunderstanding or not being able to comprehend what's going on with them in small ways. In small ways, oftentimes, I know that I have been guilty of not showing the love of Christ. But to truly regain the first love is to love others as Christ loved us. That while we were enemies, Christ died for us. How do we do that? Remember, repent, renew. Remember the love of a God who came to this earth and died for you. In just a few moments at this table, you will receive the sign of that love. An assurance that Christ loves you and calls you to love others as he has loved you. Let us pray. Father, in our hearts, we are so often distracted. So many other things clamor for our attention and our love Our first love, you, we forsake you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, Father. And so we need to remember your great love for us. Lord, give us a heart of repentance to turn from those other things that we count to be more important than you and to turn back to you. And Lord, give us strength that that love we have for you might issue forth in renewed works of love towards others, that they might be drawn to you and know your love. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.